This week, I'm speaking to Rowan Gormley, founder of Naked Wines and CEO of Majestic Wines. Rowan grew up in South Africa, but moved to the UK after following his wife to London, where he worked for none other than Richard Branson. After setting up Virgin Money and then Virgin Wines, he was unceremoniously fired, which led him to start his own company, Naked Wines. Disrupting the world of wine with his crowdfunding platform, Rowan's mission is to change the wine industry so that makers and the customers are given a fair price for the best wine. So far, Naked Wines has pumped over £100 million into supporting over 200 winemakers all around the world. Rowan sold his business to Majestic in 2017 and is now at the helm of both businesses as CEO. I had the great pleasure of chatting with Rowan in his Watford HQ, sadly not over a glass of wine, but surrounded by his beautiful bottles. It was such a meeting of minds with a shared common belief in the role that independence and face-to-face will play in our future that we should be guided by loyalty and not those quick wins, as well as the ultimate importance of the power being put in the hands of the customer. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table, and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Rowan. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. I'm the biggest Naked Wines fan and have been for years. Frank and I, that's my other half, absolutely love receiving our boxes of wine, learning more about the wine, the makers behind the wine, which makes that glass on a Friday night feels so much more guilt-free. I have to say your business is one that I, I actually talk about a lot in terms of who is best in class for customer engagement, from that tone of voice to the email communication I've received to the people that I chat to on the phone. So I can't wait to talk to you all about this. But you're also now the CEO of Majestic Wines after they acquired Naked Wines. So I'm guessing there's not much that you don't know about wine. It's just a shame maybe we're not sipping one now, but it is early in the morning. So I'm thinking a cup of tea is much more advisable. It's a bit early before lunch, (laughs) yes, absolutely. (laughs) Only last night I was sipping on a bottle of wine called Small and Small, which is Sauvignon Blanc from Naked Wines, which links very nicely to my everyday passion. And it's absolutely delicious. So it was just lovely that I was sipping this wine. I was going to meet you today. So thank you so much. 
Well, welcome to Naked and thanks very much for inviting me. It's oh, great to be here. So, first, I'd love to start with your story. I had the pleasure of hearing parts of it at an award ceremony that we were both at. But after researching you, your life has been fascinating. You were born in Boxburg. Am I pronouncing that right? That's right. In South Africa. Could we start from what it was like growing up there and what led you to founding your business, Naked Wines? Well, that was an interesting time because it was uh, apartheid was alive and and uh, still very much a, a big thing in South Africa at that time, and so I grew up in a country which I loved, but also knowing that it was there was something fundamentally flawed about it, not actually knowing just how flawed it was because until you've lived in another country, you never really realise just how screwed up the whole concept was. And went to university in Cape Town. I had lots of friends whose parents grew grapes and made wine and that sort of thing. So that got me involved in the romance of of wine. But I always did it knowing that I was going to leave South Africa at some point. And the thing that got me involved in the business side of wine was walking into a wine shop in, in London to buy some South African wines and finding they were three times the price they were in South Africa and go, well, that's wrong. <laughs> There's no reason that should be the case. Uh, so I, I think the South African upbringing, they're, they're definitely pluses and minuses. Uh, but a feedback I've had all my life is, is you're a bit too South African in being overly direct <laughs> and maybe not as sensitive to other people's feelings as I should be. But, you know, the plus side is people know where they stand. The other side of it is there was always a sense of urgency growing up in a country where you felt like, well, it might not be here for very much longer. Uh, there was always the need to, if you're going to do anything, you might as well do it today because there may not be a tomorrow. And that's given me a sense of urgency that's stayed with me all my life. And, you know, living in America, living in the UK, where the horizons, it just seems an awfully long way away. People in general don't have that sense of urgency, and I think to some extent it's a competitive advantage. That's your where you were brought up. But what did you study? How did you come to actually think, well, yes, there wasn't this wine that you wanted in the shop, but yeah. was it because of a love of wine that you studied? Or I, I believe that wasn't your start in no, life. No, no, no. I trained as an accountant, and, you know, really because I knew I was going to leave South Africa and I needed something portable to come with me. Uh, and as soon as I'd qualified, I couldn't wait to get the hell out of it. So no, it was absolutely nothing to do with training. It was a combination of falling in love with the romance of wine and understanding that the economics, there was something screwy in the economics, which seemed like an opportunity. And then it really dawned on me when it was, you know, 98, 99, the internet was just starting to happen And I was using Amazon to buy, and I was discovering new bands and, and new authors for the first time since leaving uni. And I thought, that's what the internet's for. It helps you discover new things in a way that standing in a shop, staring at a label, doesn't do. And that kind of light bulb went off in about 1999. And I was running Virgin Money at the time. And I thought, okay, well, money's not the place to do this. But what are the products other than books and music that have the same problem, you know, which is you don't know what it's like to get at home? Wine. So it was a sort of combination of 
I think I spotted an opportunity. And by the way, I've had a pretty soft spot for it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You actually started Virgin Money. Is that right? Yeah. Just that little thing. So you, you came over from South Africa. You found yourself going to Virgin. I spent seven years in private equity first. Right. Uh, with a company called Electra, which was a fantastic education and a, a, just a brilliant, brilliant place to work and learned an awful lot from some very, uh, some amazing people. And we worked in a deal with Virgin, which never happened. And then I just got a call out the blue from someone with a slightly hesitant tone of voice going, hello, would you like to come work here? And I said, who is it? <laughs> he said, it's... Richard. Richard who? Branson. And I assumed it was a friend taking the piss. So, <laughs> But it was him, and that's what he wanted me to do. And literally, the day I arrived, uh, we sat down and had lunch, and all the Virgin Big Shots were there. And I was feeling very out of my depth and uncool. And, um, and the discussion was, what are we going to do with the Virgin brand? And everyone was talking about spaceships and nightclubs and boutique hotels and that kind of thing. And I put my hand up and went, uh, what about financial services? <laughs> and everyone snorted and went, oh, ridiculous financial services. And Richard was the only one who went, why? So I said, no one trusts banks. Everyone trusts Virgin. Just, you know, just saying. <laughs> just putting it out there. Yeah. And he went, and he always has this big A4 book. He writes everything down. He said, okay, let's do financial services and wrote it down in his book. And afterwards, I said to him, so do you want me to do some research or write a report? Or He went, no, let, let's do financial services. So I said, do you, do you mean banking or investment or insurance? Or, he went, I don't know. You suggested that you can do it. <laughs> and that was it. My goodness. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And so you then built this. And I believe that you then had a sort of moment where you then thought about the wine industry in Virgin. Yes. And it didn't go down so well, did it? So after five years at Virgin Money, which had gone very well, and I had my wine epiphany, I pitched it to Virgin. And by that stage, Richard had hired a lot of Harvard MBAs who added some, you know, much needed rigor to the decision-making process. They did the kind of things that Harvard MBAs do. So they went, oh, we're only going to be in half-billion-dollar businesses. And wine can't be a half-billion-dollar business. So therefore, no, we're not interested. And so we set it up anyway, and we called it Orgasmic Wine. And myself and my brother and a friend, we just worked nights and weekends and got it up and running. And then after about six months, I went back to Virgin. I said, well, look, with the benefit of no money and no branding and nothing, we've got a business. So there really is something there. Why don't you come on board? And so they did. What a privilege to actually hear such an entrepreneurial spirit coming through all of this. And I believe that also, Richard, you worked quite a bit with him, didn't you? And he was probably pretty influential in the beginning stages of this journey. What's the biggest lessons that you think you learnt working under such an entrepreneur as Richard? Firstly, he is a brilliant mentor because he genuinely didn't want to do your job. He wanted you to do your job brilliantly. And the thing that always struck me was he just didn't accept industry wisdom. So the fact that, you know, a big airline said it needed to be like this just counted for nothing for him. His motto always was, 
you know, if you focus on loyalty, you'll get loyalty and sales and profit. If you focus on sales or profit, you'll get none of them. And therefore, always start with what is it you're going to do for the customer that's better than someone else is going to do. And if you get that right, everything else will fall into place. And obsess about that part and leave the financial modeling for another day. And I really think that's a lesson that, you know, to this day, all over this building, all over the company, you will see people obsessing to the point of of uh, madness <laughs> about how to make something better for customers because we're only interested in customers who we can keep for years because those are the only ones we ever make any money out of. And creating that kind of virtuous circle where you obsess about the customers, therefore they become valuable, therefore you generate decent profits out of them, therefore you can continue to reinvest. That virtuous circle, I think, was at the heart of everything Richard stood for. Now, interestingly, of course, there were occasions when he forgot his own motto, like, you know, virgin bride, virgin cola, virgin vodka, where fundamentally it was slapping the virgin brand on someone else's product. But the golden rule in Virgin was every time they created something genuinely differentiated, it flew. Every time it created something that was a rebadging exercise, it flopped. So mm. what a fantastic lesson. And as, as you were mentioning there, having that real life experience and almost trusting that instinct, you know, he was trusting his gut, wasn't he? He was trusting that versus almost the education part or exactly. the learnt formula. I think that's exactly right. He, and he often would say, I never had my instincts educated out of me. Mm. Never finished yeah. school, never went to uni. Yeah. Never had the chance to take his instincts and have him like, be told, no, those are all wrong. Here's the textbook way of doing it. And I think that's a very big part of who he is. I really resonate, actually, with that because I've definitely noticed a strong trend after um, interviewing brilliant entrepreneurs so far for this podcast. So many of them failed um, at school, you know, yet they've gone to do fantastically well and build brilliant brands. You know, Joe Malone left school without any yep. qualifications. Wilfred the Black Farmer left school, yep. in his words, barely able to read and write. You mentioned Richard and, he, you know, he says he was seen as the dumbest person at school. You yep. know, I left school, I think it was a D, maybe an E in business studies A-levels. You wonder, don't you? You keep wondering what is it that I can learn here and to help other people? And maybe education needs to adapt to help encourage entrepreneurship or harness the skills of running businesses. Or as you were just saying, that inner compass, that trusting the gut, that feeling. How can we develop intuition? Absolutely. And I think education lags a very long way behind where the economy is. And, you know, in a country like Britain with no natural resources... Uh, and a relatively high cost of living. Uh, it depends so much on creativity, entrepreneurial instincts, all the rest of it. But our education is is still driven by the ability to learn by rote, you know, as someone figured out in the Middle Ages, and it just hasn't moved on a lot since then, and it's, it's bonkers. It's, it really is, and it's it's quite scary when you think what we're going to rely on in the future. I, I, it is scary. I think that companies are actually performing a valuable service, though, and little red herring. But one of the things we try and foster very strongly here is a, a test and learn attitude where there are no crazy ideas. If you've got an idea, as long as you can prototype it, we'll try it. 
and then we'll let the data tell us the answer. So our customers are quite used to seeing something on the website and going, oh, that looks interesting, and, and clicking through, and then hitting a page going, oh, sorry, this was a test. Here's £10 worth of free wine as a, an apology for wasting you know, a minute of your time. And you know, we'll do that all the time, rather than sitting around in a room debating where the highest salary wins. It's like, mm. show us the data. If the data says customers want it, we'll build it properly. But let's not waste a second talking about it because mm. we never learn. And do you think from your point as the leader, when you have that data and you we go back to what you were just saying about Richard, you know, just go and build financial services, you know what yeah. you're doing. Do you have that instinct that you also will overlay? Because data can tell you one thing, can't it? Yeah. But then there must be your instinct, your vision, your gut feel. There is, but I think that's pretty deeply it's permeated very deeply through the organization. So it's very much not a one-stop shop with me as the kind of central reservoir of wisdom. <laughs> In fact, my <laughs> colleagues would love to <laughs> tell you about all the crap ideas I've had. <laughs> the, I've been utterly convinced our, our, our wonderful flyers and the data has proved pretty conclusively or not. <laughs> so, but I think the other thing that I have learned is sometimes the first time you have a crack at it, the data comes back and says it's a dog. And one or two tweaks to the wording, one or two tweaks to the idea, to the execution, to the pricing, suddenly changes it from being something that doesn't work to something that does work. And therefore, mm. don't give up. But in the end, the data wins. I really wanted to talk to you about using your business for good. Can you tell me where, how that went from virgin wines... To naked wines. Can you tell me about that period of your life? Well, I had two bits of luck in my life. One was getting hired by Richard Branson. The other was getting fired by Tony Lathwaite. And the journey in between those two was, I told you, I got hired by Richard. And when Virgin Wines first launched, we made every dot-com mistake. At the time, big fancy head offers, big ad campaign, burnt our way through millions, discovered six months later... We'd got nothing for it. <laughs> we were like, oh, shit. <laughs> and so we had to do a real kind of, you know, lose 80% of the overhead, lose the fancy London headquarters, retreat with tail between the legs to cheap offices in Norwich, start again from the beginning. And we did. And we built it back up to a £25 million business that was making a million and a bit pounds a year. And by this stage, we'd sold the business to Lathwaite's. Uh, and then we had a, a bit of a fallout, uh, which resulted in them firing me. And I turned up at a meeting thinking I was negotiating to buy the company back again. And instead got given a letter saying that I was out. And I walked out and got out my phone, which had been cancelled while I was in the meeting. <laughs> so I walked into a mobile phone shop, got a, got a new phone, phoned the office and said, anything going on there? And they said, yeah places crawling in lawyers. What's what's going on? So I said, okay, well, these 17 people, tell them don't sign anything, don't agree anything. And I then phoned a German friend who had been looking at funding the business and said, would you like to fund a startup? And he went, yep, sure. In the few hours post you... Minutes. Minutes, my goodness. And he said, how much money do you need? And I said, I think three million. <laughs> and he said, what currency? Pounds. <laughs> <laughs> He went, okay. <laughs> so within 15 minutes of being fired, I had a team funding and a new phone. 
And there was the start of Naked Wild. And with an ambition to give them a run for their money? Yeah. So it was, two th- it was June 2008. Lehman's had just gone bust. Greece was bust. Ireland was bust. You know, the whole world was in turmoil. And yeah, it, it was, let's do this again, but use the fact we've got a clean sheet of paper to do it right this time. And I think the, we did a bunch of things right in Virgin Wines. One of them was discovering the power of small winemakers and how actually people are much more interested in real wines made by real people than big brands. But the fact there was a financial crisis going on meant we had to do it in a more intelligent way. And at that stage, the term crowdfunding, I don't think it even been invented. No, it hadn't been invented. But, you know, the thing we figured out pretty quickly was slick marketing is only going to get us so far. What we do need is a genuinely better product for the money. There's no way with no scale we could get that by leveraging winemakers. So we had to do the opposite and, and help them rather than try and beat them up. And the thing they needed was cash, and we didn't have any cash. So we had to try and go to the public. And it was a big ask to say, you've never heard of us, so you've never heard of these winemakers, you've never tried the wines, but we'd like you to give us money to buy some wine, we'll deliver to you in six months' time. And, uh, and it worked. And that's a classic case of, it was one of the people at work who said, come on, you're a test and learn guy. We've got to test asking our customers. And I said, it'll never work. No one in their right mind would do it. And here we are. Gosh, (laughs) isn't it amazing? Because as you said, crowdfunding didn't exist. This idea of going to your customers... And also when you think what Richard, you know, looking at loyalty, looking at that customer experience first, and actually from knowing marketplaces, actually you are the customer, which was the wine producers and what they were actually needing and breaking that mold to say, we're not going to beat you up. Actually, you're going to become our biggest advocates. You're going to become the people that we cherish. That's right. It must have been a scary time because what I'm interested in at the moment is I love talking now about businesses that do good, as you just mentioned, businesses are now, I think, providing so much more of a role model in terms of doing good, you know, and the power that now business has to change society, to change our economy. I agree. And the interesting thing is, I think that's been on a journey from businesses. I'm I'm never certain about the expression giving back, because it makes it sound like it's a different activity to business. Yes, as opposed to business models that are inherently positive for society. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between the two. And there's been something very instinctive in everything I've done to try and build businesses where actually we're on the customer's side and we've changed the relationship with the customer from one where it's buyer beware to actually I can put my faith in these people and they will look after me. And if they fail, it's their problem, not my problem. And doing the same thing with the suppliers, as you've just pointed out, that was a big change. It was a it changed massive an, in, change. An inherently confrontational relationship into a collaborative one, where we're both on the same side going, the better we can do in giving our customers better wine for their money, the better it's going to be for both of us. Oh, by the way, for the customer as well. So let's figure it out. And I think having... That at the heart of the business model makes for better business and better society.
mission at Holly & Co is to support creative small businesses through sharing useful, tangible, soulful content all year round. Whether you have your own business already or you're thinking of taking that leap of faith and pursuing your lifelong business dream, I'm here to support you. I know what you're thinking. How can I keep up to date with all this inspiration, Holly? Well, it's simple. Just head over to Instagram and follow at Holly Tucker and at holly.co so you don't miss a thing. By following these accounts, you'll be the first in line to receive all of my exciting podcast updates, hear my personal thoughts as I share the lessons I've learned the hard way and absorb this colourful, amazing, creative community that I shine a light on every single day. And let's not forget, you'll be notified each time I'm hosting an IGTV live, often with special guests, industry experts or hosting a Q&A with the small business community, answering those business questions you just can't Google. So what are you waiting for? Get following. I can't wait for you to join me. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You talk about your virtuous circle, don't yeah. you? And shining a light on these makers, cutting out that middleman, you know, becoming the Kickstarter for wine. Can you tell me more about what happened there? Because now we've got your funding, you've got your team, you've got the idea, but you were going to disrupt an entire industry, yeah. right? Tell me how that went down. Well, you mentioned earlier you were drinking a glass of Bill Small Sauvignon, right? Which is uh, particularly opposite because actually that was our first genuinely crowdfunded wine. <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Now, that wasn't in my research. I, didn't, I couldn't have known well, that. Gosh, how you, funny. You happened to pick exactly the right wine. <laughs> and, um, you know, so when we first started, we literally had to just go out to people we knew and buy wines and get them in and start selling, right? And in, we were no different to anyone else. But we wanted to start the cycle of funding the wine and make it and all the rest. But wine is not like Coke. You don't just run an sh extra shift on the factory and it's in the warehouse tomorrow. It's months away Yeah. You know, at its quickest. So we started with New Zealand Sauvignon because the gap between pick the grapes and put in the bottle is so short. And we looked around and this guy Bill turned up. And he's the quietest, shyest man. Luckily, his wife is completely the opposite. Otherwise, I don't think we'd ever have found him. <laughs> Claudia, she's lovely. And whereas most suppliers would go, oh, you know, the price for this is five pounds. Bill just said to us, look, here's the recipe. And here's the, we, we can make a choice between this type of fruit or this type of fruit. And here's the cost and let's figure this out. And the thing that I never knew is that the difference in the price of the fruit that goes into Oyster Bay at £6 a bottle or Cloudy Bay at £26 a bottle is about how much would you say? So £20 difference in retail price. What I'd like to think a lot of difference. About 30p. That is the difference between premium fruit and average fruit and commodity fruit. So when Bill said to me, look, you know, we could be spent buying this for 1,200 a ton or 1,500 a ton, I was thinking, oh, we should go with the 1,200 a ton because we need to keep costs down. And then you work out, well, divide that by 1,000 bottles, that's New Zealand dollars, and that's 30p. 
Yeah. Buy the best, Bill. Go yeah. crazy. Go mad. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> and once you understand that. How fascinating. It's a bit like perfume, possibly. Yes. Yes. That actually spending the money to put the best ingredients inside the bottle costs relatively little money. But it makes a better product, which means the customers stick with you, which means you get the loyalty, which means you don't have to waste five times that amount of money on marketing to go and recruit those customers again. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the kind of insight that we're just like, that's how we should do this. It's not about making the wine cheaper. It's for the same price you'd pay for a supermarket wine. Make it an absolute fuck-off bottle of wine. Sorry, am I allowed to say Yes, that? you can. Right. Yes, that's, absolutely. Make it an amazing bottle of wine. So you saw that insight that that's what they needed. That's the help yeah. that they were desperate for. Because, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, because this isn't my area of expertise, but, you know, they were used to being just beaten down on price. You know, they weren't used to someone saying, tell me what the difference is. Let's work together. Go for the best. We'll back you. Yeah. So tell me about that backing part. Yes. That industry yes. must have started to see this naked thing going on thinking hang on a minute this is this is disrupting what has been a very long-standing way of operating so i think the the key thing was there are lots of companies who go to winemakers and promise the earth i'm going to buy you know millions of cases from you and you're going to be huge and all the rest of it and then call up to go oh actually it's not really working so you're going to need to reduce the price and by the way you're going to need to do some marketing support. And by the way, you know, I'm going to have to pay you 180 days. And so there's this absolute imbalance of power between the maker and the seller. And so we wanted to reverse that balance of power, and we did it with money. And the difference is by saying to someone, we want you to make better wine, and we want the price to be fair. And the way we square both of those things is we want you to make actually a bit more volume, so that you can spread the costs over more and the economics work better. And we promise you we're going to sell it and you can believe us because here's the money. Huge difference. Mm. And, mm. you know, in the end, the biggest single difference in, in the taste of wine is the quality of the fruit. So it's what happens in the vineyard that matters. Can you imagine if you're a grower and you don't know if, if there's a market for your grapes until they're picked? Versus someone who comes along and says, here's some money. We're taking all your fruit regardless. You can make it the best. Oh, and, oh wow. And the difference for in, in the outlook for the people who are winemakers from can you engineer 2p out of the price of your wine to can we make this wine 50% better by putting another 50p in the bottle, you know, which one would you rather be doing? And the interesting thing is there's a, there's a golden rule in the wine business that um, the best winemakers are bad salesmen and the best salesmen are bad winemakers. <laughs> and it's so true. And so often when you come across a wine where there's a huge personality behind it and they're friends with all the wine critics and they're on the telly the whole time and you taste the product, you go, this is pretty bloody mediocre. And then you find people like Bill, who is an absolute craftsman, making this stunning, stunning wine. And he's the quietest guy. If you asked Bill to sell his wine, he wouldn't have a bloody clue. <laughs> so in a sense, the role we play, if you think about the publishing business, all the author has to do is write a book. And imagine if you, how many books there would be if you said, well, you've got to write the book, then you've got to edit it, then you've got to print it, then you've got to distribute it. 
Then you've got to do all the regulation, you've got to collect the cash, all the rest of it. You know, there'd be very few books published. And in a sense, we're doing what a publisher does for authors, for winemakers. I've never heard it described that way. It's in a wonderful way, because I've always tried and talk about that, how actually what I discover is amazing um, craftsmen yeah. who are introverted, yeah. who, um, who you know, not necessarily business is their forte yeah. or marketing, but what they're great at is their craft. Absolutely. And there we were to do the rest for them, yes. to shine a light on them. Which is very rewarding, isn't it? Oh, well, it's every, I'm yeah. sure you're the same. Get out of bed and, and do this every day is, is a blessing. Yeah. I think what's so noteworthy is about you is this disruption of an ancient industry that has been around since basically time began and an industry where typically as you said that winemaker gets hardly any profit from their goods and let's say they have a bad harvest they can go bankrupt over one season and yet the world is dominated by money do you think this is a trend that is going to grow in business and what advice would you give maybe to a small business with not that financial backing and a way that they can look at business to gain gain that loyalty of customer? I think the key thing for us was dis- discovering that the missing ingredient was funding and that didn't need to come from a traditional place and speak to your customers first. Because if your customers are your shareholders, you know, I spend way too much time looking after shareholders if they're both the same people, then that's a, that's a happy outcome. Mm. And I think the second lesson would be we every algorithm here is optimized for loyalty rather than short-term sales. If you can get the virtuous circle going where once you acquire a customer, you keep them for years, you have such an efficient business in comparison to someone who's constantly re-recruiting their own customers the whole time. I think over time, what we've learned is the more we focus on loyalty, the better reward we get. The more transparent we are, the more loyalty we get. So, for example, you will get emails from us saying, you know, we've had lots of requests for a an Uko Valley Malbec, and we've gone off to Uko, and we've come back, and... Here are three winemakers, there's Pedro, Luisa, and Marco, and here's their story. And who would you like us, we're going to give one of these three people half a million quid to make us a wine, who would you like it to be? And those decisions traditionally were made in tasting Mm. rooms like this. Yes. (laughs) But actually pushing those decisions to the customer and getting them to make the decision for us, first of all, they're pretty good judges of what's going to work, it turns out. Uh, in many cases, better judges than we are. (laughs) And secondly, they start, before the products even hit the shelf, they've started a relationship with the person who's making it. And therefore, by the time the product materializes, you've got a ready-made audience. Gosh, I absolutely am enjoying this so much. It's where the entrepreneurs are getting, yes, the glory of building businesses, but all of that spotlight is being shared amongst everybody that is creating the brand. And we see our, our winemakers as entrepreneurs in their, in their own right. Yes. You know, it, it is a community of entrepreneurial people who happen to be united around wine. And some people are funding it, and some people are drinking it, and some people are making it. 
and some people are doing all the boring crap in the middle, which is us. <laughs> <laughs> where do you think your passion, this shining a light, as I said, on other people, where do you think your passion for cheerleading that underdog has come from? I think it comes from, uh, it, to be honest, I think a lot of it comes from Richard Branson. <laughs> Something I really learned from him was, as I said earlier, this looking at an industry the way Harvard Business School taught you to doesn't teach you everything about it. When you scrape below the surface and you start understanding the human dimension and the insight of actually the best way to generate a better product was help people rather than beat them up using, you know, using money. That's the kind of, of attitude he always tried to foster. Once I saw it, it just really made sense to me. And do you think anything in your past from South Africa? And do you think there's something that you go way back? Yeah, I think the idea of business as being a good for society Definitely something in an environment like South Africa. There were some companies who ran themselves in a way that was good for society and some that ran themselves in a way that was incredibly bad for society. And growing up in a country where there's such inequalities in income, it always felt like, well, you know, A, that's an injustice, and B, this is all going to come crashing down at some point. I think the desire to try to do something in the right way was started there. with seeing what injustice looks like. But the person who opened my eyes as to how to do it was definitely Richard. Do you have a story that you're most proud of through Naked? And is it right that you've invested over 100 million now into more than 200 winemakers worldwide? Yeah, um, well, we're very proud about that. Congratulations, by the and way. And I think the, the, the most heartwarming tale is we had a South African winemaker, her name's Carmen Stevens, who was the first black woman to graduate for, as a winemaker in South Africa. And 10 years after the end of apartheid, we bought her wine and uh, she couldn't get an overdraft from the bank to bottle it. And so we went to our customers and told them the story and said, look, we need 2,000 people to each ship in 50 quid to make this happen. And we raised it in four hours. And today, Carmen is a well-established naked winemaker. Uh, she employs an army of people. She runs an amazing program feeding 3,000 school kids a day. Um, yeah. Great. People can't see the smile on your face, but I can. And that's just a, a wonderful story. And as we were just mentioning, you know, makes what you do and makes what you built into something that is just so beyond business. It's your legacy, isn't it? It's what you've empowered people. And you'll never know how many souls you have touched now through what you dreamt up. Well, that's very kind of you to say so and it's it's um one of one of the lovely things about it is is you know very often i'll end up sitting on an airplane next to someone and we'll start chatting and they'll go what do you do and i'm in the wine business and they'll go oh i buy my wine from this this amazing company it's called naked wines and this is how it works and, and sometimes i go <laughs> oh hello <laughs> and sometimes i go 
That's fantastic. I'll look him up. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how chatty you're feeling. Exactly. <laughs> it's so touching, that story. Do you have any advice? You've, you, you know, you've gone virgin wines, naked wines, now CEO of Majestic. You know, there isn't another person, I don't think, like you on the planet. What advice would you give? You know, we've got a lot of people coming through with craft beers, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any sort of tips? Uh, ignore received wisdom. <laughs> so a lot of what the so-called experts will tell you is a load of complete horseshit. And the reason they are experts, in inverted commas, and not in business for themselves, is if they knew the answer, they'd be doing it themselves. And authenticity. I think that one of the biggest trends in, in consumer spending today is away from fake manufactured, confected brands and into genuinely authentic products. And, you know, when a big supermarket puts a, uh, a picture of a handsome farmer in his checked shirt on the front of the potatoes, you know, it's called something like Evesham Vale, and you turn it over and it's made by Agricore in Brazil. People are starting to figure out that it's just a big multinational farming potatoes where probably there used to be rainforest. It's not a cute little English farmer, you know, hand-making his potatoes one by one. <laughs> mm. and people are seeing through that stuff. Mm. And so be authentic. And, you know, you look at the rise of craft gin and craft beers, really authentic wines. I think that this is a big trend. And the, the, what the internet does is it enables the wine drinker to be able to meet the winemaker, despite the fact you're thousands of miles apart. And that's how you know which of these stories are true or not. We get approached by people the whole time going, oh, I found some sportsman who's prepared to put his name on the brand for 5% royalty, and we're going to, you know, launch John Smith wine. And isn't that really exciting? No, not the slightest. Mm. You know. mm. Well, it's short-term gain, as you mentioned before. It, it, it won't even be a game. Oh, no, not no, in the short-term no, or the long-term. <laughs> you know, no one cares. So guess what? A sportsman agreed to license his name for money. Well, does yes, that mean the wine's going to taste nice? No. <laughs> I use Naked Wines a lot as an example, and it goes back to uh, part of what you were talking about, authenticity and what the uh, culture you're building in your business is. Because... My experience as a consumer has been incredible customer engagement from your hilarious tone of voice to the informative emails telling me about these makers that I'm supporting. I also never feel like I'm being sold to or that I'm silly for not knowing enough about wine. And I love the fact you call us angels. You know, that it, was that you coming through with that tone of voice? Was it something that just developed over time? Well, first of all, I'm delighted with all three of those because those are all three, those are things we want to do. It really was something that when we set up the company, we wrote down on a sheet of paper, this is the kind of company we want to be. And every now and then we dig out the sheet of paper and dust it off and go, are we still doing this? <laughs> and sometimes, to be honest, you know, we have lost sight of some of those founding principles and every now and then we have to go, you know what, we should go back to that. Because we were right. That was the right way to do it. And one of them is our customers should never feel sold to. And the second is our customers should never feel stupid for not knowing enough about wine. That's our job. 
Well, it landed so because um, hearing that, 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 that's, again, this is a bit spooky. One of these things because I know you also. We've talked about you focus on that customer experience, that loyalty, that service, not the marketing, sales, and advertising side. And I just wanted to, for those who might not know Naked Wines, I just wanted to give an example. Dear Holly, this is, wasn't to me, by the way. So, dear Graham, I shouldn't say Holly because this is about leaving Naked Wines. I didn't leave. Dear Graham, where did we go wrong? You closed your angel account with us and we're really sorry to see you go. If it wasn't you, we're guessing it was us. Whether it was the wine, the service or something totally different, we value your thoughts on the naked experience. No need to be polite. Just give it straight. I promise we'll take it on the chin. And another a wonderful self-depreciating um, point in the journey. Okay, thanks for your honesty. Now please rant to your heart's content using expletives, if you like, and really sock it to us. It, it's just fantastic. No one else does it. So that was written by a guy called Greg Banbury. His father used to work for me in Virgin Days. And Greg flunked school. And his father said, can, can, he, can he come get a job for the summer? Uh, and he now runs Naked Australia. My goodness. And going back to where we started the conversation, the uh, educational establishment, for whatever it was worth, didn't, whatever Greg has, they didn't get it out of him. I'm sure he didn't help himself now, Greg. He's a little monkey, but... <laughs> <laughs> but he's now running your Australian ship. <laughs> he's got a shipload of talent, which is why he's running a, a business in Australia. But. So you, you mentioned this, uh, this concentrating on the customer and not on this marketing. Again, the people listening might be dreaming of starting a small business or are, are running one, and you know and I know what it's like running a business. When things are tough and you have little budget, what else can people do, do you feel, on a minimum budget but with a huge amount of passion? Well, never ever give up. And there have been plenty of occasions when, you know, our good ideas haven't worked and we've been sitting watching the cash in the bank dwindle <laughs> and it looks like the first things we tried were failures and it would have been so easy to have gone, all right, that's it. We gave it a shot and let's let's move on. And in every case, by sticking at it and going, if it really felt right in the beginning, keep trying, have another go, do it differently, ask other people, be radical, but never, ever give up. It's amazing how often eventually you see a little flicker of smoke somewhere and you know that there's a, a flame burning, and then you've got someone to blow on. And eventually, with enough huffing and puffing, you can turn that into a raging fire. But you only need that one little spark. You know, what, what we had to do in one particular case was, like I say, we cut our overhead by 80% and absolutely bootstrapped it and just said, right, I'm just going to hold on to the five people I absolutely could not live without. And so, for example, we had a shipping team of four people who were always complaining they were under-resourced and the shipments were always late. And we got rid of three out of the four and kept an 18-year-old intern who ran it fine and everything, the shipping turned up and he had no complaints about stuff being late. But it turned out one good person could do the job of four bad people with a lot better and with less fuss. I'd never have found that out <laughs> mm. if we weren't forced yes. in the situation of you just got to do more with less. That's it. 
And, you know, I think that came from Archie Norman at Asda. That was his, we're going to do more with less. And sometimes when you do have choice, this is where yes. you can burn through money. Yes. That was the most precious thing, you know. It's, it's, it's actually the creativity and the way you think and how you work on less money. You get a lot less, smarter when you've you got no choices. You get much, much smarter, don't yes. you? And it's why we look at, and I'm, what would we have done with that money, you yes. know, etc. And I wanted to ask you about... We you know we're in this world at the moment that's feeling a little uncertain. You know, we have retailers such as Oddbins going into administration. We have Brexit looming. We hear so much about online being to blame. But I can't help thinking it's because the high street just hasn't progressed like the internet has. So many shops haven't picked up what the customers were actually looking for. You have experience of online now with Majestic, you have many stores, so you've got this retail space experience. What do you think the future holds and what do you think needs to change to help save the high street? So firstly, I think that face-to-face will continue to be a very important channel. I absolutely do not think that everything's going to be digital and, and online. I think the store may, is doomed. The concept of a place where you put stuff that customers come in you know, read a label and pick stuff and go home. I think that's doomed. But I think the role of face-to-face we should be doubling down on. We've got a vision for, you know, what the majestic of the future would look like. It would be more people spending more face time with customers, doing something with wine you can only do face-to-face, which is helping someone build their understanding of what they love and don't love through trial, wonderful product to do it with. It's like if someone told you, here's a perfume, you're really going to like it, as opposed to you dab it on your wrist and have a smell, it's incomparable, right? Mm -hmm. So that's something that wine is particularly well suited to. It'll be about an experience. It'll look more like a showroom than like a warehouse. There will be more people spending more time with customers and fewer people lugging boxes around the place. And the goal will not be to sell someone a case of wine. It'll be to get some get someone into a wine relationship where they will work with us over years for us to look after their wine needs. And I think that combination of all of the convenience and intelligence of an online proposition, but absolutely seamlessly integrated with a face-to-face experience is a powerful combination. We had... Um, a retail, a very knowledgeable retail guru, take us around a whole lot of stores as, you know, these are retailers who are leading the pack and doing exciting things. And the experience for all of us at the end of the day was, well, that was incredibly underwhelming. What you've got is a whole lot of people optimizing a steam engine, as opposed to saying, you know what, the concept of asking people to drive, park, walk, carry, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and very few companies really thinking about, in the end, how do you make this a better experience for the customer? They think about, how do I get more sales out of my square foot? Yes. And it's the wrong equation. 
And that's of the past. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're experiencing. So, so, and I've heard, you know, over time people describe, you know, the high street is just basically scattered with people who will now disappear. Yes. And it's about what replaces them. Yes. And not in the high street, it's always, I, I mentioned people think it was against the high street. Actually, it was saving the small businesses from a high street that didn't welcome them anymore Absolutely. due to prices of landlords, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. When you look at a, a high street in the future, Tell me about that sort of vision of that high street, that group of shops, or what would that look like to you? I think the two things I'd love to see different in the future are lots of people, but no bags. So people are coming for an experience. The product can be delivered to your home. You don't need to carry it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and secondly, that if you went to a high street in Doncaster and you went to a high street in Southampton, then there should be different stores. They would be independents. And I think that a model where you have brilliant people who've got a real interest in the outcome of the customer relationship because they own the shop. And when that customer comes back, if they do something good today, that means that customer's going to come back for the next three years. That's valuable to them because they're going to be there in three years' time, so it mm-hmm. matters. I'm launching, actually, another shop in four days' time. So I'm, I'm very interested in, in what you were saying. And I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased what you said is actually... Is the secret what, what we're going doing? to do. Well, actually, funny enough, well, I'm opening a deli, right. all small producers. Um, I'm opening a wine bar. Would you believe this? And I'm now feeling very inadequate about how I was doing some wine tasting yesterday. It was probably the best meeting I've ever had in my life. And we're supporting wine producers. We're supporting small uh, food producers. Yeah. I'm all for this independent high street and and what you're designing here is just music to my ears I'm sure to anybody listening because you know you're you've put the makers and the creators at the heart of what you're doing so at the end of my interviews I do use this analogy that running your own business is just being on this crazy roller coaster and I you're nodding there and I know you know that so I wanted to ask you if you could pick a proudest moment, a greatest high, what would that be? There have been a few, but one of them was the day we did the deal with Majestic. Uh, We were up all night the night before in lawyers' meetings rooms, then six o'clock in the morning to the press, and then all day to investors. And eventually I got home at nine o'clock that night and, and slumped in front of the table, absolutely exhausted. And I got a call from Norwich with um, one of the guys in the pub saying, we're all in the pub, you got to get here quickly. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I thought, oh, the last thing I feel like yeah. doing is driving into Norwich yeah. And, and, yeah. and having an evening yeah. boozy session after all that. But anyway, I did. And when I arrived there, there were, there were a couple of people, one of whom stood out in particular, who'd started with us in the call centre on day one. And uh, she had had a payout of effectively six times her salary. Mm. And, sorry. Oh, I know. It is such, yeah. She had a payout of six times her salary. And... She was saying she's got enough money to buy a car, put down a deposit on a house, 
pay off her shitty ex-boyfriend's debts <laughs> and still save half. And... Wow. That was great. A true entrepreneur because, um, you know, one of the things that I see is so many people that I'm talking to and why it's so emotional is because you don't do this all for you. You know, you do it for everybody else. And, you know, when you so sort of talk about your businesses putting the customer at the forefront, you, Rowan, puts everybody else at the forefront. And actually, that is giving you the most pleasure on this journey. And you can see that by the way you describe one of your proudest moments, being someone else, making someone else's dreams come true. You know, who would have thought that your business would do that? an amazingly rewarding thing. Yeah. A privilege. Yeah. A privilege. Absolutely. And on the absolute opposite of that, which also might bring you to tears, a low? I think the low... So when we set up Virgin Wines, like I said, I, I assumed that, you know, the combination of, of Virgin Wine and online was and me were so incredibly powerful. <laughs> and I had two successful startups behind me and thought I could walk on water. And we raised all this money very quickly and easily and burned through it and found ourselves in a position that nothing was working. And I couldn't bring myself to face reality. And we burned through more millions while I was refusing to recognize what was in front of me. And the point where I eventually went, okay, I've got no choice. I've, I've got to face into this. And I knew that we were going to have to lose a lot of jobs and um, disappoint a lot of people. That was a lie. Something I've also asked my guests to maybe let me know would be someone else that you would think would be a great guest on this podcast, someone that's inspired you um, along this journey. I think the person I think you would love to speak to is the lady I referred to earlier, Carmen Stevens, because uh, being a black woman in an industry dominated by white men, where the power is in the hands of the retailer, not the producer, you've got to be pretty bloody determined to make it work, and she is. And... Uh, she sounds like a force of nature. She is a force of nature. And she has brought up two absolutely delightful girls, built a business, runs a charity to feed 3,000 children. You know, you've got to take your hat off to that. She's on the list. Good. She's on the list. Thank you so much for your time today. It's remarkable to think how many lives you've changed and how the wine industry has changed for the better thanks to you putting your philosophy at the forefront. I will certainly enjoy my wine even more. Um, I now know his name is Bill as well. <laughs> and knowing you has been an absolute privilege today. And I do ask my guests to read their letter to self and it's a bit where I just get to sit back and be delighted even more but today's been a privilege thank you so much well thank you and I think one thing I'd just like to say is you use the word you a lot and all of this is very much a team effort and that's that's not me saying that out of you know out of politeness there have been some amazing people on this journey and none of these things happen in isolation it, it always is so uh, this was a very interesting exercise writing the letter to myself it, it actually made me stop and think 
and I broke it into two sections. The first, here, here are some things I did right, I would recommend you copy. And here are some things I did wrong, I would recommend you don't copy. <laughs> so um, and the things I did right, ignore the people who tell you your idea is crap. And I've had some good ideas and I've had a lot more bad ideas. But there's absolutely no correlation between what other people have told me <laughs> and whether the idea is good or bad. And um, actually, just, just nothing like trying it and give it a good go to find out. Never ever give up. Night is always darkest just before the dawn. And one from Richard, focus on customer loyalty, get loyalty on sales, focus on sales, you get neither. So I think those three things we did right. Here are some three things I did wrong that I recommend you don't repeat. Uh, number one, don't follow the crowd. In the dot-com boom in 2000, that's exactly what I did. I've kind of lost sight of my inner self and thought I should do the same as everyone else. And I went pretty much the same way as everyone else. Um, don't believe your own bullshit. I mentioned earlier that I took way too long to face into the fact that our first iteration of the business was a failure and was never going to work. And the prime reason was I couldn't accept the fact that I had failed. And getting over myself was an expensive business. And finally, don't forget what it's, what it's for. And, you know, the flip side of being excited and involved and driven and all the rest of it is every now and then I look up and look around and think, oh, well, there's some people I've lost touch with or, you know, my children have reached a stage where I never noticed what was happening in the meantime. And you never get that time back. And no matter how much people say it to you, I don't think anyone gets to the point of having grown up children without thinking, I wish I'd done more. So don't forget. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been just a, a real privilege and it's been wonderful to meet a fellow soul who wants to make the world just that little bit better. So thank you, Rowan. Thank you. That thank you. If you enjoyed my conversation with Rowan Gormley, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with the formidable Charlotte Tilbury, MBE. You can find any of my past episodes by searching wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Mm -hmm.